Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail... Incredibly challenging. Practically every tourism business in the country has been mortally affected by this. I've heard from the tourism industry that they are absolutely desperate. Today, we're trading at around an 80% revenue loss, and in early March, it was more like 95. It is very dire. Yeah, we definitely need help. We need help yesterday. And to be honest, a really real chance, along with many other businesses, that we just won't, we won't survive COVID-19. Without tourism, we haven't got employment. It's not only the businesses that then suffer, it's also the primary schools and the high schools. Tourism and hospitality are doing it really tough. We're fighting really, really hard to stay open, but it's a tight labour market. People are leaving, people are being poached. It's really, really challenging, and, and I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that it was particularly tough. But are we kidding ourselves that tourists will come pouring back in? And much of the world is living on a strategy of hope. So get ready for a new kind of tourist and a different way of travelling. So I don't think there is a bounce back. I think there is a significant reset. Today we look at the impact of a second summer of closed borders and how businesses can survive as another outbreak takes off. Can you just come to check in? Yes. Great. Just bear with me for a moment. Please take a seat. We'll just get to our reception manager to come and join you. Just come and make yourself comfortable. Thanks. That's Richard Benton, director of West Coast Wildlife Centre. When I called him, he was greeting a guest on the reopening day of a hotel in Punakaiki. I'm the um, owner's representative for a hotel called the Ocean View Retreat in Punakaiki. And the owner engaged me to rebrand it and spend some money and reopen it. It's the largest hotel in the in the Border District, 63 bedrooms, and we reopened again today. So uh, this is my side hustle at the moment, Sharon. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got more than one side hustle, though, haven't you, Richard? I have. What, yeah. what else? So you've you are what the owner director of the Kiwi Experience and Franz Joseph? Yeah, the Franz Joseph Wildlife Centre. So I own and the director of that. I also own a business called New Zealand Brochures and Distribution. I also chair the board of uh, Tekapo Springs, and I'm co-chair of the Glacier Country Tourism Group, which is a group of 104 businesses in Glacier Country. Funny time to be setting up a new hotel, isn't it? It's, it's going to be a challenging time, but what we have seen, of course, is New Zealanders do enjoy travelling around their own country, and um, we've been very grateful for that, and we don't expect that to change. So we've got extreme confidence that this is a a terrific opportunity. How's business been this summer? Franz Joseph, I think, has been highlighted as one of the places that, you know, has really struggled in the last year or so. So what's it been like? It's been challenging in in, in Glacier Country and in Franz Joseph. And the picture around New Zealand, I think, is really quite mixed. But certainly in this little slice of, of, of New Zealand, um, it's been a, a tough summer period. Uh, and don't forget, we're almost two years of COVID now. So it's been um, pretty challenging now for quite some time. So when you say challenging, what do you mean by that? The glaciers are about an hour and a half south of uh, Hokitika. So, you know, one of our largest markets is Christchurch, of course, and a drive from Christchurch to Hokitika is three hours, but then you've got to travel just that extra one and a half hours to head down to Fox and Franz Joseph Glacier, and that can often be difficult to uh, encourage uh, New Zealanders to do that. We're not seeing anything like the levels of business, of course, that we enjoyed prior to, to COVID and when 
our international visitors were travelling. When you and I met in June last year, you said things were bad, pretty bad for you then. But, you know, looking ahead, you didn't expect things to recover or get back to some form of normal by 2026. Have you you've been able to stay open? We have. I think I, I tend to refer this as we're still in the fight, um, which is particularly pleasing because we employ you know, up to 10 people in our business and all our, our, our team are local people. So we're a small population. And so centres like ours um, are critical if, if a town and a community is going to be able still to maintain its volunteer fire and ambulance and and its carpenters, electricians. And in this very, very tight labour market at the moment, it's even more important that you know, conservation centres like ours uh, remain in business, but it's extremely challenging. Uh, we haven't received any funding since uh, June last year, um, and we are relying on, therefore, visitors coming and, uh, and finding more about our conservation programmes and, of course, the world's rarest kiwi, the rowie. You know, as, as we discussed last time, there are five species of kiwi in New Zealand. The rarest is the rowie. Uh, in partnership with DOC, we've hatched over 355. There's only 600 left in the wild. So 60% of all those beautiful baby rowie kiwis that are out in the wild have been incubated and hatched at the West Coast Wildlife Centre. So without a facility like ours, um, you would have to ask yourself, what will the future for uh, conservation around this particular kiwi look like uh, in South Westland? Where does the money come from f- for your business? I mean, do you get some dock funding? So look, um, up to two, two and a half years ago, uh, we were pretty much self-funding. We're a public-private partnership with the Department of Conservation, but 95% of the revenue that came into our business came in through our admission revenue. That's people coming through the door and enjoying the experience and, and purchasing, purchasing a ticket. Our retail shop and our, our cafe and bar. And um, when COVID came along, that changed. And we received some essential funding from both the government and from the Department of Conservation, which was critical to, to our surviving and to maintaining our workforce. That funding all ran out uh, at the end of June last year. And we are sort of running on a, a smell of an oily rag, I guess, and we're fighting really, really hard to stay open and continue to do what we're doing and, and of course, to continue to employ key people in the community. But it's a tight labour market. People are leaving. People are being poached. It's really, really challenging. And, and I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that it was particularly tough without that additional funding. So you're, you're seeking public funding? We're going to need just some funding to keep us going until Omicron or whatever the next latest COVID challenge is going to be, and we start to see the return of some some of those those wonderful visitors. And so we just want permission to be able to continue to do that that valuable work. Have you actually um, put in an application for more funding to tide you over? Well, there there are no applications or processes available at the moment that I'm that I'm aware of. Uh, there have been, of course, in the past. There doesn't appear to be any any process in place at the moment. So I guess we're just we're just waiting really, mm. and. Uh, continually talking to uh, the department as to um, what avenues might be open to us in order to keep our, our business business open and to keep our team uh, engaged. Because our staff are skilled, of course. You know, it's really tough to find fully trained um, Kiwi husbandry managers uh, or, or Kiwi staff. You don't just put a job on seek and, and hope for some applicants. There's probably only around uh, 10 to 20 of those individuals uh, around New Zealand. So that's, that in itself is a challenge, of course, as well. And so can you give me an idea of how much business has dropped off? 
I guess it always depends on what you're comparing it to. If we're comparing it to pre-COVID, businesses dropped off by between 70 to 80% in revenue terms. If you're comparing it to last year, so if we looked at January this year, so far to date compared to January last year, our business will be around 18% down in cash. Is it one eight? One eighteen. Yeah. One yeah. eight. Eighteen. 18% down in cash. Mm. Um, but, of, but of course, if you compared that to three years ago, uh, it would be well over 80% down in cash. So it's a, it's, it's a big hole really that, that needs to be filled in order to be uh, sustainable. So enticing packages aimed at New Zealanders, but is it enough to keep tourism businesses like the Wildlife Centre and the Punakaiki Hotel hanging on? Well, David Simmons is Emeritus Professor at Lincoln University and Tourism Sector Advisor. And like most of us, he's just back from holiday. Oh, well, Sharon, we had a, we had a lovely summer. We uh, headed out to the, to the periphery. Um, in our case, we went to Ross just south of Hokitika on the marvellous west coast. Magnificent sunshine. But, but, but in, that, in that pattern, we didn't do a lot of travelling around. We stayed reasonably close to home, three hours or so, in case one needs to scurry home in the event of a uh, upswing in COVID. And experience um, looking around a number of towns is that I think people are just hanging in. A number of businesses have reduced hours. So, you know, it's pretty hard to find a cup of coffee after 3.30 in the afternoon. Um, some businesses are closing. And one or two things that have been reported to me is that in the absence of students and workers who were travelling around, is a lot of people are just really relying on family labour. So you get the, the sense that a lot of it is belts and braces, just hanging on for better days. And if that's the case, and we've got, well, at least one more year, probably two, possibly three more years of this uncertainty. How many of these businesses can survive? Well, I think the question is, to me, what do we know of the future? The World Health Organization has been quietly saying that there will be more variants. Mm. So I have found nothing to convince me that this is the last big variant. And I think the second thing that we really do need to be aware of for businesses is I don't think there is any bounce back to what it was, whether that's two years, three years, or or eight years out to, to, to 2030. So people at the, at the edge of business are really running thin to the line, are faced with some very, very challenging decisions about whether to raise the mortgage, uh, hang on in, or maybe exit the sector. But I think we're looking at a much smaller sector in the medium term. And which ones will we still be seeing in, say, you know, five to seven years' time? I think if there was a, a first measure, and I think one would say, what was the proportion of international versus domestic visitors um, in your town? So MB uh, have already identified a number of towns which are significantly at risk. So they are South Westland, Fans, Fox, Haast, Queenstown and Rotorua. So those that were highly dependent on international visitors and those that I think were dependent on, let's just say, scaled up tourism. I don't, I don't want to say mass, but people who come in coaches stay in larger hotels with foyer. Uh, and and more sort of meeting grounds and maybe those attractions which which bundle people together. 
Um, I think what, what has happened is is that we've become so used to the concept of our bubbles and of keeping our safe, ourselves safe and minimising contacts that tourism as a highly social activity will continue, but there'll be a much tighter focus on sort of keeping it within our group, in-group solidarity, if you like. So one could see a different trajectory for um, hotels that one might see for larger hotels, for example. Mm. Uh, in, term, in terms of those who survive, and we haven't talked about the potentials and the opportunities in domestic travel, I think those, those who can really understand the domestic market and in particular the wave of visiting friends and relations that might follow and put on paid experiences, opportunities and products for them. So once again, the innovative uh, will survive and maybe those with bigger businesses who can underwrite losses for a longer term. So many family businesses, smaller scale, which is the absolute heartbeat of the tourism industry in a lot of places, I think will be challenged. Well, our borders are still firmly closed to most of the outside world right now, but surely tourists will come rushing back when they reopen, right? Wrong, says David Simmons. He spent a lot of time last year looking at our major tourism markets and working on a model of the future. And it shows that business trips are off, education has gone online. So what does that leave? What we have seen is that a very big short bubble of visiting friends and relations. So these wonderful scenes we've seen of people meeting their grandchildren, of siblings being reunited, uh, of couples being reunited, I think is very, very important. That's, that's the human heartbeat of travel and reconnection. But even with the Australian bubble last year, there wasn't a lot of air underneath that. And if you take the straight leisure market, um, as I said, people will be more cautious. So if I just take one example of that, our single biggest proportion of leisure travellers, a proportion, not a number, was from Germany. But to be a German, to come here, and you have to, so Germany's had a tough time, it says Europe, uh, with COVID and its management. Uh, you have to go to an airport, you have to queue, you have to go and lounge on the other side of check-in, you, you compress getting on the plane, and then you sit next to a stranger for 12 or so hours, and then you will hub somewhere. So it could be Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Dubai. Um, and then you, following a period of sort of lounging in an enclosed space, you compress and sit next to another stranger for 12 hours and arrive in wonderful New Zealand. And what did Germans do? This was just on 70% of their market. Well, uh, they wandered around in our beautiful big open wilderness. Uh, senses of solitude, um, natural majesty and the like. But the reality is Sweden, Norway, Iceland, Greenland are full of very similar substitutable opportunities. So in the model, they only get back to uh, high 60% by 2030 of their previous demand. Whereas um, visiting friends and relations, I mean, of all the things we do, um, our family and our friends are not substitutable. Just about all the other things are substitutable in, in some form or another. So I, the way I see this is I've got us getting back to about 80% of demand by 2030. Now, this is just, just a line in the sand or, or finger in the air, but underneath that, I've got a very strong pivot to closer to home markets, Australia in particular, and within that, an even stronger pivot to visiting friends and relations. So one of the anomalies in that is the UK, 
uh, where we still have very close uh, familial links. And that'll be an interesting one to watch. Um, single flights there, such as from China or the United States, both those markets have very real challenges. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there is a bounce back. I think there is a significant reset. And uh, I'm not sure that the industry is quite having that conversation yet. It's being, it's being led by the big end of town uh, who, who are very highly capitalised and, and I think uh, aren't necessarily reading across the human dimensions of travel and the human dimensions of this pandemic willing uh, when you say it's being led by the big ends of town, you're talking about the big companies who are what? They're able to keep themselves afloat by just, you know, pouring more money into into the business. So I'm talking about airlines collectively, uh, airports and and the like. And there's, a, there's an article in today's uh, Guardian that says airlines are flying near empty ghost flights to retain EU um, airport slots. Well, uh, not many companies can do that for long with, with negative cash flow uh, and the amount of capitalisation that, that they have. So I think at the moment, much of the world is living on a strategy of hope. And to me, hope is not a strategy. I'm, I'm as a scientist, looking much more at the science and saying, um, I mean, the worst outcome is by the time when this trickles down to our small operators that we're talking about, people may be making uh, decisions that have uh, profound effects for them they may be remortgaging their businesses or, or thinking that Omicron's just going to flow through here uh, and and then mortgaging their houses to support their businesses and finding out that that in the long run there is just not the demand to support that size of sector. Well, that sounds very grim, David. But, I mean, so to me it feels like this is a dismantling of the sector and, um, you know, people I've spoken to over the last couple of days are saying, well, this is our chance to rebuild it into something that we really want. Uh, look, out of adversity comes opportunity. So, yes, there may have been a lot of money in tourism, but people are questioning, was there a lot of value in it? So this word regenerative tourism has come very much to the fore. And I remember uh, Eugene Sage talking to the uh, New Zealand Tourism Summit about this maybe three years ago and says, well, where did this idea that tourism just draws on the environment come from? What would a tourism that gives back to the environment look like, where people might uh, volunteer some time or assist in predator control or be able to uh, give some funding to do things? So I think when you look right across the spectrum, there is a sense that tourism may have been uh, subsidised by the public good, whether that's cultures, the lovely warm hospitality of people, use of our environmental resources. And that tourism can be a good thing. Um, we probably have to slow it down and we have to make sure we've got the economic instruments in there to really make sure that it pays its way. So I, 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 I do think, uh, although I've seen little evidence of it yet, maybe it's more of a, a forlorn hope that we're going to move away from a quantitative tourism towards a qualitative one. People stay a little longer, they engage differently and positively with host communities. They understand our place and the contribution uh, of, of nature to well-being. And that does mean um, less volume, but it might mean a much better experience for host communities or in the first instance, um, less drain on the environment and actually a much more rewarding uh, travel that is much more memorable for, for the people who choose to travel.
One of the big controversial tourism things is freedom camping. Do you think there's a place for freedom camping in the future? Well, <laughs> you're right. It is, it is, it is a hot issue. Well, the, the simple reality is nothing is free. And, and what it is is actually being subsidised either by our environmental systems or by, or by local residents. So uh, I would have always preferred the term responsible camping. And then the, the opportunity then is to actually really extract from those people opportunities to add value to the experience, whether you know, this whole movement towards uh, active tourism, mm. where the cycle trails such as Alps to Ocean or the Lake Dunstan one or guided hiking, uh, value-added narratives are still there. So, so the point is, how do we, A, in the first instance, close the loop on the cost? That is simply the um, polluter should pay. And secondly, how do we provide opportunities to add value to local economies and to the visitor experience? You know, I don't have anything against uh, that style of travel per se, but I think it's got to stop being subsidised quite clearly. What's your feeling about the future for the industry then? In spite of the first part of this conversation, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. I should, should preface that by saying my first degree is ecology and my resource management and human geography. So this fitting around the world in aeroplane, just spewing carbon, will happen in the blink of an eyelid of human endeavour. I think people always want to travel and explore and, and look around the bend in the river or at the top of the hill. But the idea of flitting across the ditch to Australia for a mate's 50th or 60th birthday, I think will get squeezed out. It will get squeezed out either by cost of flying, because we haven't talked about uh, the fact that we really are much more seriously entering a carbon-constrained economy. The $1,800 return airfare to um, Europe uh, will be a thing of the past. So actually, Sharon, if you, if you were sitting here and you put on your, your darker glasses, uh, what emerges is a view of the sort of 1970s, mm. where a trip to Europe was a really big thing, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Uh, there was quite a bit of local uh, Pacific, Australian, maybe Southeast Asia travel, but we were much more mindful about it and over time more responsible about how we undertake it. Back at his newly opened waterfront hotel, Richard Benton is relentlessly positive. New Zealand's a fantastic place to live. Um, we're just going through a sticky time at the moment. Uh, and a sticky time means we have to think a little bit differently. And we don't want the sticky time to last for too much longer because the sticky time then becomes something incredibly difficult. Oh, well, good luck. I, I really hope that you get through it. And it sounds really exciting anyway, some of the things that you're doing there. It's fantastic. Look, I'm sitting here looking out at the waves crashing against the, the foreshore and all the rooms looking out over the ocean, of course. So, my gosh, New Zealand, come and join us. We'd love to host you. <laughs> it's a very good flag. <laughs> I think I might have to leave it in. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded by NZ On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Alexia Russell produced this episode. Adrian Holley engineered it. And thanks to David Simmons and Richard Benton. Mā te wā.